so before we dive into this text, what I want to be reminded of as a church is that Jesus shed his blood so that we might be cleansed of our sin, have consciences that are purified, be made right with God. And that is at the center of the gospel because what, what Jesus did is he stood in our place and died the death that we wouldn't have to die that death. But he died that death as a perfect, sinless, spotless sacrifice. So the shedding of Jesus' blood was a sacrificial shedding. We have to remember that. We can all probably, most of us can say it and articulate it, but it's important to repeat it. Repetition is one of those things that you find. I told, me and Joseph were talking earlier, I'm like, if I'm the person that chooses what books of the Bible we go through as a church, we would have never gone through Hebrews or Revelation. Those two books freak me out. Just the, the overwhelming task of trying to teach them. I, I just, like, am overwhelmed at trying to teach any verse in the book of Hebrews. I'll just be honest with you. Like, I mean, it is the most taxing, overwhelming thing. I know for some of the other pastors here, it's not like that. It's, it's, it's for me, though, I, I struggle. It's so complex, and it's difficult. And trying to take these Old Testament references and bring them into Jesus and then bring them out of what Christ did and make them applicable to us, y'all, it's hard for me. I'm just being honest. And I know it's hard for them other guys, but it don't seem like it when you're sitting there listening to them tell it. It's difficult, but at the end of the study of Hebrews, there's one of the things that's so important and helpful for me is how much I've learned in this study, how much repetition there is. Like it's this constant promise, the work of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the high priestly work of Jesus, and there's just repetition. We love repetition. I mean, I'm... I've watched, there's people in our church that have watched every episode of The Office 10 times. I do that with the, with, I do that with the Andy Griffith show. I've watched all 260 whatever episodes. I don't know how many times. A bunch. I live in Mayberry in my imagination. I am, my best friends are Otis the town drunk and Ernest T. Bass. And we hang out. On rough days in my, I get on the lawnmower and start mowing and it's me and them boys, you know, like, but we'll, we'll watch, there's movies that you watch over and over and over. I remember as a, uh, when, when my kids were young, my older kids were young and I remember watching Shrek so many times I could quote the book of Shrek, I mean the movie of Shrek. <laughs> I, that is one of the books that I did read before watching the movie, the book of Shrek. But we're, I, think we're, I think we're wired for repetition. I literally think God made our minds work well with repetition. And we need to be reminded of the gospel. And Hebrews is this constant reminder of these sacred, sacred truths. The shedding of blood. The sacrificial offerings. The priestly role of the Old Testament priest and the better priestly role of Jesus. And you've got this constant dynamic of we look back at the Old Testament system 
And here was a sacrifice and the way that sacrifice had to be made. And then we pull forward and look at what Jesus has done and we say, but he's better than that sacrifice was. He's a sacrifice, but he's a better sacrifice. And there were these old priests in the olden days and they did things a certain way. And there were some good priests and there were some priests that were questionable. And there, there was an imperfect system, but Jesus is our high priest and he's better as a priest than they were. And so the repetition that happens, even within chapter 9, there's a lot of repetition. I, I, I want to read, in fact, in just a minute when we get into the text, I want to read what I wrote after my heart was moved under conviction of the teaching of the Word of God last Sunday where we were so challenged by God's Word. And, and so I want to I read that to you in a minute as, as we sort of stitch last week into this week's text but I wanted to tell you one story before we dive into it it was years ago there was a there was a church, a group of churches uh, and I'll tell you they're from the United Methodist denomination and I'm not calling people out but that is that is a denomination that is right now in gro gross turmoil trying to figure out who they are and where they're going to go we can pray for our Methodist brothers and sisters because they are spinning right now in a bad direction where they are, they are on the verge of abandoning the orthodox teachings of the Christian faith, of abandoning the gospel. Paul said to the Galatians, some people, are, some people are preaching a gospel other than the one that I gave you. And those people will be accursed or condemned. So we pray for those people that are trying to hold the line and I remember at the beginning of that slide away from the gospel, there was a group of Methodist churches that came here. Now, I say that with we at Snowbird Outfitters, we still work with a lot of Methodist churches. There are a lot that are fighting to hold the line. But there was a group that came here to check out this facility. If you're new, this is there, we're, we're, where we're meeting here is it's a youth camp and conference center, retreat center. And I remember this guy walked in, and we used to do this drama that was a portrayal of the crucifixion of Jesus. It's really bloody. And it was really bloody because my father-in-law and I were at a church leading a youth event one time, and some people did a skit at that church, and it was a skit that portrayed the crucifixion, but there was no blood. And I remember they brought the guy that was playing Jesus, they brought him down front, and they stood him up front, and they had taken like a red marker, I'm not making fun or being ugly or throwing off, just telling you what, how, what, this story. And they had like marked with a marker, a little bit of blood here. They had marked a little bit of blood here. Uh, and they had put a little bit of blood on the side and made uh, like a couple of little lines like where the crown of thorns would have, would have trickled. And I remember we're driving home and we had this long conversation about how we have removed the grotesque, bloody nature of the cross of Christ from the Christian worship service a lot of times. We've, we've sterilized it. But at the same time, we, wanted, we, we don't want to do something that's inappropriate. So how, and I remember we had this long conversation that turned into two, uh, Bikahuna and I turned into two or three more conversations. And finally, I was like, you know what? We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna put the blood back in the cross for students to see. And so we made up a, a skit, a drama, and it was extremely graphic, and it was bloody. And there were the, the, the stuff that we used for blood was made out of corn syrup and food coloring. And so it had stained the back wall of the stage because we had done it so many times. It was over in this other building over here. And, and so this, this group of youth pastors 
from this denomination came to check out the camp to say, okay, we're going to use this camp. And I remember they walked in the building and one of them sort of recalled and he said, is that supposed to be blood on the wall? And then he said, this is not going to be one of those camp experiences where you talk about blood a lot, is it? And I thought, that's, that's where we're at. We are, we, as a culture and a society, we're removing the blood from the gospel. And last week, we sung so many songs about the blood of Jesus that it almost got uncomfortable. It almost got uncomfortable for me. And I don't, and I don't mean that facetiously or like, I'm saying it's when you really start to think about how much the author of Hebrews is talking about blood, it's a little bit uncomfortable. And it's because we are so accustomed to everything being sterilized in our world, everything being sanitized in our world, everything being handled in such a, a sanitary manner. Is that the word sanitary? Like we're so focused on cleanliness. By the way, there's no verse in the Bible that says cleanliness is next to godliness. That's extra. It didn't cost anything. wasn't in my notes. <laughs> but in the time of Jesus and in the time of the Old Testament covenant, blood was a part of so many different aspects of life, including all the pagan religions, including the Jewish religion. It was so much uh, talk about blood and, 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 and it was kind of front and center. And so as we're working through this, we have to kind of deal with this conversation about blood. We have to deal with it. We have to deal with it in a, in a biblically faithful way. Let me read to you what, uh, this, was, this was the review and highlights from Rob's sermon last week, just from my personal journal notes, um, verses 12 through 14. I want to use this to set up verse 15 that we're going to get into tonight. We're only going to read seven or eight verses tonight. Um, review and highlights from verses 12, and, uh, 12 to 14. Uh, we spoke of the cleansing or the purification of the purifying of our conscience. I think that was important for me to, to, to think about the fact that my conscience can be cleansed and that that's a, that's a major work of God in the gospel, um, in the shedding of the blood of Jesus and the application of that blood uh, to my life and to my sin. Jesus entered into the presence of God, the Father, after he had shed his own blood. The earthly priests entered the presence of of God with the blood of a sacrificial animal. We learn that Jesus went into the holy place as our anchor so that he might pull us in to be made pure and brought into reconciliation with God. I think it's very important that we consider that the earthly priest with the rope tied around him was going into a temple that was built by hands, a temple that was made by humans. Therefore, it was a shadow of a greater reality, a greater temple that was not built with human hands. Here in chapter 9, we're reminded that Jesus has gone into that greater reality. He has gone into that heavenly sanctuary that was not built by human hands, and he has taken his seat, and we are anchored to him. The earthly priest had to enter the Holy of Holies every single year. Jesus has entered the heavenly Holy of Holies once and is our sustaining anchor forever. He completed the work, but he continues to be our savior and our sacrifice. We're gonna talk about that in just a minute as we get into the text. The, I heard uh, an illustration help me with this this week. Jesus is our sacrifice one time, 
but he's also our ongoing sacrifice. But he doesn't keep sacrificing himself. And the guy used the illustration of motherhood. He said you, a mother gives birth one time, but motherhood then continues. And every single day she's practicing motherhood. Jesus died that death one time, shed his blood one time, but is our ongoing sacrificial um, savior. I thought that was a really helpful thing. Uh, Jesus entered in, uh, entered one time because he came to earth one time to fulfill the gospel one time that he had promised for many times to shed his blood to cover our sin. His sacrifice needed to happen only one time because it was a perfect and final sacrifice. His salvation is a full and permanent salvation rooted in his eternal nature and superior sacrifice. I can't help but think about the doctrine of eternal security. We believe that a person who is saved by grace, washed in the blood of Jesus, sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, put into the hand of God. John chapter 10 verse 28 says, I give them eternal life. They will not perish. No one will pluck them from my hand. We believe that the doctrine of eternal security, that being that if you're in Christ, you will never, ever, ever be let go by God. That it rests in the completed work of Jesus. That, that, that if he would let us go, that would there need to be then another sacrifice? We sort of addressed that back in chapter 6. Jesus continued to be our high priest as well as our advocate. Moment by moment, day after day, year after year, Jesus stands before the Father on my behalf. Thank you, Jesus. I'm so blessed this week. Every time, last three weeks, and me and Anna be texting, she'd text me updates. And she would always at the end say, thank you, Jesus. And her emoji game is on point now. Like praising hands and pointing up and explanation point. Awesome little round faces making great expressions. Because she's excited. Have you ever been so excited about something? You're like, I'm so excited about this thing. Man, as Christians, we should be so excited about what Jesus has done for us and what he's continuing to do for us. He's standing before the throne of God on my behalf right now. How in the world can we not be joyful about that and thankful for that? This is such a big concept for those of us who may have never been advocated for, have never had good representation for those that feel alone in this world or abandoned, the great promise of the gospel is that Jesus is your representative and your advocate. If you're a person that maybe throughout your life you've never had, maybe you grew up and you didn't feel like you had someone that was advocating for you, representing you, Jesus is your advocate. So we get to verse uh, 15. Verse 15, it says this, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So there's a lot going on. Uh, there's a lot going on in that one verse. That one verse, just that one verse has the words mediator. Well, it has the word therefore, which means everything we just talked about. Then it has the word mediator. Then it has the word new covenant. The word's new covenant. Then it has the word called. That's a theological landmine for some people what does it mean that we're called like well it means that he called us out of death and into life he called us out of the bondage of sin into slavery to righteousness and freedom from sin and its dominion 
that we may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now, what is the promised eternal inheritance? Well, as a Christian, there's aspects of your inheritance that you already get. I've always imagined, I've always imagined being rich. Now, I could stop right there. That'd be the end of its own sentence. You know what I mean? Like, all of us have probably imagined that. Imagine being able to provide an inheritance but then enjoy the inheritance with the recipients. You know, it's kind of that idea. Well, the, the inheritance that we receive in Christ, Peter writes about this. He says, he describes the inheritance. He says, it's, uh, it's, um, it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's reserved, preserved, and kept. Guarded is the word. Your inheritance as a Christian is guarded, and part of your inheritance you get now, and then you get it in, an, in, a, in a more grander, amazing way when you're with the Lord. And part of it we get now, and part of it we get then. And some of it we get now, and we get it better then. As the old country preacher said, we get it gooder. It's good now to be gooder then. You know, like if we experience worship now, imagine experiencing worship then. So there's, there's this aspect of your inheritance that you get to receive now. You get hope now. You get joy now. You get forgiveness now. You get freedom now. You get these promises of God. You get peace that passes understanding. But then you get it gooder then. You get it better then. It's going to be enriched then. So he says there's this inheritance that Christ has provided. Eternal life is at the center of that. And we get that inheritance based on the new covenant that Jesus has made with us. And that is, that is because a death has occurred. Now, in verse 15, he uses the word covenant, new covenant to be precise, two times. Two times. The Greek word is diatheke. That's how I say it. I don't know. I've asked, I've asked a couple guys here, am I saying that right? And it's like, I don't know. So we don't, nobody wants to, but I think that's right. But it's covenant, but it's the same word that will be translated in the next two verses as the word will, W-I-L-L. So looking in in verse 15, new covenant, two times, it says, therefore, he's the mediator of a new covenant. And at the end of the verse, committed under the new covenant. Now go to verse 16. For where a will is involved, that's the same word. Will is the same word, diatheke. Where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will, same word, takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So he's given us this really, really good picture where these two, so the idea of a covenant and a will are this, this merging idea where in one sense the word covenant, that's a religious term. That's a religious term. You hear people say, I'm not into religion, I'm into relationship. No, we're religious. Everyone's religious. Religion is worship. Religion is a structure, a belief system that drives the way I view God. And like, like so yes, it's a relational religion. We have a relationship with God. But a covenant that God has made with us, the covenant that we have been brought into through the blood of Jesus brings us into right standing with God and gives us an inheritance. The will, W-I-L-L, same word, but that's a legal term. So we've got a religious term a term of our faith, a doctrinal term, covenant, and we've got a legal term, will. Okay, so let's see how these two merge. Well, here's how they merge. The covenant that God makes with us provides for us the inheritance that we get. Eternal life at the, at the center of that inheritance, forgiveness of sin, the removal of sin, 
the freedom that comes in knowing Jesus, the, the freedom that we have from our past, all of that is part of our inheritance. That is made possible because of this new covenant that Jesus has provided. And he is the mediator of the new covenant. Now, what is a mediator? Well, the mediator, a mediator is a person that arbitrates or goes between two, two people or two systems. So Jesus goes between us and God, making the relationship possible. We come to God through Christ. He, God receives us through Christ. You see it? You get it? We have a relationship with God because of what Jesus has done. He's the mediator. But with the will, what he's saying there at the end in verse 17, he's like a will doesn't get activated legally until somebody dies. The person who writes the will. That like, okay, so I haven't watched any of this. I wish I would have. I'm going to go back and watch some of it. I found out that they made uh, Charles the official king this week. Any of y'all into the royals? Any of you? Not the Kansas City baseball team, but the, you are, Carrie, you've been following it? This week, right? Coronation? It was, it's tomorrow. It was last Monday. La okay, so here's what I thought about with this. That poor joker, not, and poor is the wrong word because he's not poor, okay? <laughs> that man's been waiting to be king. And his mama, she lived a, to a ripe old age, you know what I mean? Like she just kept living. And everyone knew Charles is going to be the next king. But guess what he was? Prince Charles until she died and then all the inheritance of kingship went to him right she had to die before he could become king and and the, the idea is that for someone to receive the will you could be the the, the word starts with a b the beneficiary of a will okay you're the beneficiary of a will you get you get what's coming to you upon death, okay? But then after that happens, there has to be a legal process. Now, the person, in, if you've written a will, the person who writes the will is the person who is passing the inheritance on. Jesus plays that role. He writes the will. He gives the promises. He gives us the promised inheritance. He tells us what we're going to receive when we come to him. But he has to die to make it happen. So he dies. But now the problem is, if he's dead and stays dead, the promises he's made to us rest on a living Savior. They're not monetary promises that, well, if he dies, then we get, we're the recipients, the beneficiaries, we get everything that he left behind. He has to come back to life to provide that inheritance for us. So he is the mediator who stands between us and God, and then he is the one that guarantees our inheritance by dying, having shed his own blood to cover our sins in the process, and he kills sin, and he kills death, and he kills the grave, and then he comes back to life and says, here's your inheritance. Thank you, Jesus. Amen? Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for what you've done. Praise the Lord for that. This is wonderful news for us. What an inheritance. What a savior. Death occurred in order to redeem a will and to provide the inheritance to the beneficiary. For Jesus, his death provides all that we receive as his followers. Verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated with, without blood. 
So he's talking about um, the ratification of covenants. So covenants in the olden days would be ratified or sealed in blood. It was how they would, um, you, you've probably heard, in fact, we talked about this back in Genesis. They would take an animal, they would break the animal in half. They would, they would lay the two sides, the two parts of the animal like this. So they take the animal, they break it in half. The blood on the ground would be there. The two halves would be here. And we would, we would lock arms and we would walk over that blood between those two animal halves. It was a way that in the Mesopotamian world and ancient Israel that they ratified covenants. They were sealing the covenant in blood. They were literally saying, if I break my end of this covenant, may this be what, what I come to. May the breaking of my own body and the spilling of my own blood. It was really, really intense. They were intense people. They were into, some of you are intense people. None of us are as intense as they were, right? Like, like I, we just go get notary, notary to stamp it, you know? Like, like how, how do we ratify this covenant? How do we make this? If you bought a home and you go sit in the lawyer's office and you sign your initials 1,000 times and it's a piece, you know, it's, a, it's that thick, and there's about three people in this church that read that when you bought your house. The rest of us don't have a clue what that thing said. I've got it sitting in a safe at my house. They could show up and take my house tomorrow and be like, you signed for it. I'd be like, what did I sign? Remember all them times you signed your name? I don't know what I'm signing, right? Well, it, when, we, when we do business, they're legally binding contracts. In the ancient days, the way they bound people together in contracts where they shed the blood of an animal and that ratified the contract. So God's covenant or his covenant that he made with people was ratified in blood, the blood of an animal in the Old Testament or under the Old Covenant. Verse 19, so when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So there's a scene in the Old Testament where the blood would be sprinkled on the people. The blood would be sprinkled on the items within the tabernacle. But the one that always stands out to me here is uh, we, in, in that most holy place that, that we talked about last week, in the Holy of Holies, there was... There was the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark of the Covenant were artifacts from Israel's exodus out of Egypt. And then also, one of those artifacts was not just an artifact, it was the pillar of Israelite life. It was the tablets of stone that God had written the Ten Commandments on. So in the Holy of Holies, in the Ark of the Covenant, were the tablets of stone. And then in the Holy of Holies, that most holy place in the middle of the tabernacle, the Shekinah glory or the dwelling presence of God hovered over the Ark of the Covenant. And on top, the, the, essentially the lid to the Ark of the Covenant was what's called the mercy seat. So picture this, in that most holy part of the temple, the glory of God is dwelling in, and his presence dwells there. His spiritual presence dwells there. And then under the dwelling presence of God would be the Ark of the Covenant with the tablets of stone. And those tablets of stone represented two things. The giving of God's perfect law and man's inability to keep it. Man's inability to keep it. The mercy seat was the, was the thing that lay between a holy God who demanded perfection and the tablets of stone he had given to man to attain it. But man couldn't attain it. 
So the blood was laid over the mercy seat so that the presence of God hovered over the blood-soaked mercy seat over the broken law that man had not been able to keep. And so in the Old Covenant, the mercy seat would be sprinkled with blood. When Jesus' blood was poured out, the blood of Jesus covered our sin so that God would have his own justice appeased or satisfied. Jesus was sacrificial in that way. And so he's, he's saying that in the Old Covenant, they would sprinkle the blood over these things in the temple. But for us, the blood of Jesus has been sprinkled over our hearts, over our lives. Our sin has been cleansed. You've been purified. You're no longer, you're no longer the person that you used to be. You're not defined by your sin. You're defined by the righteousness of Jesus. The blood of Jesus has been applied to your life. You've been cleansed in deed and soul and heart and existence and conscience. He's cleansed us from unrighteousness. Now, the last thing I want to do is make sure that we understand, because there's so much talk of blood, that we understand a couple of things about the blood. When, we see, when you see blood come up in in, in Hebrews or anywhere in the Bible, references to the blood for the Christian. The first thing is this. This, is, this, is, this only gets us part way to understanding why the blood had to be shed, but to simplify all of this, if you take these two simple things away as like nuggets that'll help you understand the blood, the work of the blood of Jesus. The first one is blood gives life, right? Blood gives life. And so the wages of sin is death. And so God takes that which provides life and he covers that which brings death. Now, that's not the end of it. There's more to it than that. But that, that gets us the first step in the right direction. That's the first step in the direction. The blood that brings life covers the sin that brings death. So that helps me connect it. But, but we have to go a step further because it's not any blood. It's blood shed in a sacrificial manner. So Jesus' death was sacrificial. That's what we have to always remember. That's what we need repetition to remember. We hold on to that. Jesus died in my place. He stood condemned in my place. I'm a sinner. He's not. And he took condemnation so that I don't have to. I don't have to. Like when I stand before God one day, before the throne of Jesus, because when we get here at the end of the thing next week, at the end of the chapter, it's like Jesus is coming back. And we know he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. When you stand before God and, and, and you give an account and you can say, I am under the blood of Jesus. His blood was shed for me. It cleanses me and covers me. Tonight when we took the Lord's Supper, we were remembering the blood of Jesus. His blood washes me from my sin. In that, what we're receiving is the sacrificial blood and death of Jesus. In other words, we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus we are washed thoroughly and made clean by his sacrificial death. We're given forgiveness of sins, new spiritual life that will be eternal, and consciences that are made clean and clear. And we say, when we say we are cleansed, again, we think of it in two ways. We are cleansed of our sin and made pure. We are cleansed in our conscience and set free. The cleansing of our sin gives us purity. The cleansing of our conscience sets us free. You're pure and you're free. You're pure and you're free. You're righteous because Jesus has given you his righteousness. That's the hope and beauty of the gospel. Final application. The writer of Hebrews pointed to a past promise. 
and a hope of Jesus that is that Jesus has proven his love for us, his salvation to us, his purpose and plan for us. He has done the incredibly difficult work of coming to earth, going to the cross, shedding his blood so that our sin might be covered. There's no greater expression of love from any one person to another in all of history. He can look back at the work and we can look back at the work and be assured of who we are in Christ. Now, I want to give you something to think about. People tend to gravitate toward a favorite idea or a favorite aspect of the Christian life. Remember, Muggs and I have a, a friend, a much better friend with Muggs, a childhood friend, who was a, he was a combat Marine, of quite a few veterans in our church. And I remember him, he's a young, younger Christian, newer Christian, and he said, he said, I like reading them stories in the Old Testament where they're killing and fighting and all that stuff. I really like that. Well, spoken like a true Marine, you know, like, like he loved that part. And I, I love that. I love the life of David and the battles. And, and I think a lot of boys and men love that. And so there are different aspects of the Bible that we might be drawn to. We're also drawn to Jesus as the peacemaker. Jesus as the, the good shepherd, as the good shepherd. So it says that Jesus in Scripture is a shepherd, but he's a king. He became poor that we may be rich. He's a suffering servant, but a conquering king. Some people are inclined to appreciate love, the love of Jesus, and emulate the side of Jesus as a peacemaker who would lay down his life rather than defend himself. For others, they're drawn to the Jesus who cared for the poor and needy, and they seek to live lives emulating that aspect of who Christ was. Yet for others, they love the Jesus who drove the money changers from the temple, who flipped over the tables and called the Pharisees a bunch of whitewashed tombs right to their faces. You can believe that was an uncomfortable moment for everybody standing around. They like that fire-breathing brand of Christianity. Others might have a stronger personal focus and passion for the Great Commission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Some love to put their attention and focus on local church or ministry or theological education. Many love to study theology and doctrine, while others would rather focus on worship music and songs that ex exalt Jesus to his rightful place in our hearts. What I'm saying is this. Most of us are probably drawn to one of the many aspects of who Jesus is. I love Jesus as the one who washed the disciples' feet or the one who touched the leper, and it's beautiful. I love Jesus as the conquering king with the thrones that we see, I mean the crowns that we see in the book of Revelation, the diadems and the angels worshiping him and the warrior Jesus. I like the Jesus who called us to go to the nations. I like the Jesus who said, I'm going to build my church. I love doctrine. I love worship. Listen, there's so many aspects of who Jesus is, but there's one aspect that binds it all together for us. No matter what you're most excited about in your Christianity, your personal faith, and your walk, there's one thing that we can all, and I mean all, agree on, and that is this. The Jesus who walked into the presence of the most holy place by his own blood, with his own blood, having been once shed for the remission of sin, and who stands now on our behalf, advocating for our salvation, who sits now in exalted authority, in righteousness and forgiveness given to us, and who empowers us by his Spirit, 
and who has shown us the way to peace with the Father. This Jesus who laid down his life so that we might live and who crushed the head of Satan violently in his conquest of sin, death, hell, and the grave. This Jesus is worthy of our worship and our praise. And it is by his wounds that we are healed and by his blood that we are washed and made pure. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that tonight you would take the teaching of your word, the hearing of your word, the giving of your word by your spirit, and you would help us to love you better, worship you more faithfully, study your word more diligently, that we would love you as you have first loved us. I pray that we would understand in a, in a deeper way the application of the shedding of your blood as we continue to work through Hebrews 9 and we move into even next week considering the f literal act of you walking into the presence of God and we elaborate on that and we learn more about what that means for us. I pray that we would worship you and love you and be faithful to you. We Tonight, Lord, as a, as a church, we want to thank you for who you are and what you've done. Thank you, Jesus, for going to the cross and shedding your blood for us and dying in our place and being our sacrifice and taking our sin and then rising victoriously so that you might give us our inheritance as the one who has the authority to do so. Help us to love one another and love others and love you because of the love you've bestowed on us and help us to live lives of fidelity and faithfulness worshiping you in spirit and in truth, not swept up in materialism or idolatry or the things that the world offers, but trust in you. You are worthy of our praise and we give it to you tonight. Now we give it to you through song, so please receive it. May it be a blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.